Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. It was a Tuesday, early March, a little over four years ago. The day started off fairly normal. I had lunch with my two younger brothers, Hy-Vee Chinese, one of my favorites. Convenient for them, it was my turn to buy. The early morning snow showers had given way to partial sun as we pulled up curbside to a two-story concrete building flanked with wrought iron fence. There we hugged, shed a few tears as we said our goodbyes, and I made my way inside the place that would be my home for the next 40 months. Once inside, I was led to another building and into a small room. I remember it was cold and dimly lit, like an oversized broom closet. There, a man told me to strip down your clothes, bend over, and spread your cheeks. There's a visual for you. (laughs) Now, at the time, I weighed over 400 pounds, and I looked, well, kind of like this. So in an effort to ease the tension a little bit, I told the man, hey, look, you're getting the short end of this stick. But as I look back at him, there wasn't a hint of a smirk or a smile on his face. Just a stone-cold glare piercing back through me. The man was a corrections officer, and I was going through the intake process at Yankton Federal Prison Camp. And I can assure you, this was no joke. So you're probably asking, how does a clean-shaven, middle-income, middle-aged white guy from rural Iowa wind up in prison? Well, I'll start from the beginning. When I was young, I cherished the time I got to spend with my dad. I remember sitting on his lap when I was really young as he played poker at the local tavern. I would help him make change in the pot and stack his cash neatly in front of him. And occasionally, when he won a hand, we would use the lettuce forks to bring the pot home. It was at that table where I first heard the term, winners laugh and tell jokes and losers cry deal. My dad said deal a lot. A few years later, he showed me, explained to me what a sports betting sheet was and how to calculate the odds on things like parlays and teasers. Once in a while, he would ask me my opinion on who might win a game. I loved the interaction and attention I got with from my dad. He was my hero. And since gambling was a connection for us, I worked to learn everything I knew I could uh, to learn about it. During the farm crisis of the early 80s, my dad declared bankruptcy and lost his farm. And surely gambling was a contributing factor. When I was 20, he died in a car accident not far from the farm where I grew up. It was just two years after my mom had lost her short battle with cancer. I was basically still a kid, relatively alone in the world. I quit college. I started drinking heavily, overeating. Occasionally, I used drugs, and I gambled. Those were my ways to cope. Specifically, sports betting. The thrill of picking a side and watching the games play out, for me, there was nothing like it. But by my late 20s, things straightened out for me a little. I met a school teacher. We fell in love and got married. 
Together we had two beautiful sons, and we began chasing the American dream. I rose through the ranks professionally and eventually became director of seed and crop protection for one of the state's largest farm cooperatives. It was a great job, and it paid me a six-figure salary. But by my mid-30s, the rigors of the world started to weigh me down, and with it came a return to gambling. You see, Lady Luck will leave you for a while, but she's always there willing to give you another chance. Gambling was always the thing that I retreated to to take my mind off my problems. It wasn't uncommon for me to gamble as much as $20,000 a day on sports. The first thing I'd do when I woke up in the morning was tally up my wins and losses and look ahead to that night's action. When I lost, and that was often, I would tell myself gambling wasn't the problem, losing's the problem, and I'm due to get hot. But as the adage goes, a fool and his money are soon parted, and that was certainly the case for me. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, I can tell you is gambling for me was never about the money. It was about the high. But eventually, it became about the money. And my income, even at six figures, couldn't cover my losses. Following a string of bad luck, I entered, entered into some agreements with a client of mine, and I traded discounts on seed and chemical and gave free product for cash, which I used to pay off my debts. I also used the trust I had earned from coworkers to cover up my scheme for nearly seven years. You see, what you need to understand is while all this was going on, I was leading a seemingly normal life. I've always been buoyed by my people skills and have been called a natural salesman. Some people say if you need to sell ice to an Eskimo, talk to Hartzler. But I was caught in a never-ending cycle. I was seemingly on one side doing a great job for my work, and on the other side I continued to steal from them. And I continued to cover it up and gamble with this pipe dream of a hope to win it all back, to pay it back. I wasn't in handcuffs yet, but I was handcuffed by my addiction. I wasn't much of a husband or a father, a sibling or a friend at that time, and you've heard I wasn't much of a gambler either. Now, have you ever had one of those moments when something becomes uh, ultimately clear to you? I did in 2011. I knew for a long time what I was doing was wrong. And I dug a deep pit and tried to get myself out of it. But I came to the conclusion that there was no easy way out. When confronted with the prospect of having to uh, continue with my scheme and yet another year, I shared with my work what I had done. Shortly after um, giving them my confession and my resignation, the feds came knocking. Two and a half years later, they offered me a plea agreement which called for 51 months of incarceration. Later on, I was ordered to self-report to Yankton to serve my time. That's how I wound up in that broom closet with my pants down. <laughs> now, Yankton is the home to low-level criminals, mostly drug offenders and white-collar guys like me. You've probably heard the term club fed before, and I get it. Yankton looks more like your local park than it does a prison. But let me assure you, it is prison. And that forced separation between you and your loved ones, for me, there was no greater punishment. But rather than pout about it, I dug in and got to work, literally. Yankton is a work camp, 
and inmates are required to have jobs for which they're paid 12 cents an hour. Where's Bernie Sanders when you need him? <laughs> My job was in the horticulture department, helping to care for the hundreds of species of trees, plants, and flowers that dotted the campus. It was a, a physically demanding job a lot of the days, but the ability to work amongst the beauty of that campus gave me time to refresh and reboot. One of the jobs that I loved was to periodically, when it was time, dig up the perennial plants, divide them, and plant them in other areas of the compound. Being able to bury the pieces and watch them grow into beautiful new plants reminded me that I too could bury my past and watch it rejuvenate into something special. You see, I thought this, prison was the end of my life as I knew it. I lost a second marriage, I lost friendships, I lost my job and status, and I lost time away from the three people that mean the most to me, my kids. I missed Zach's graduation, I missed Derek's ball games, and my little girl Callie, I missed her first steps and first words. You never get those memories back. So I told myself, if you're going to be here, you're going to make the time count for something. And I did that. I took some college courses and got a degree, something I had started 30 years prior. I took a writing class, which helped me dig, deep down, or dig into the roots of my addiction. And I started to lose physical weight that I gained over 30 years of a selfish lifestyle, 150 to be exact. I came to the conclusion that even though my poor choices had consequences and I was leaving those consequences, living those consequences out, those choices didn't have to define me moving forward. You see, I'm not embarrassed about the things I did. If I were, I wouldn't be here tonight. But I am remorseful, and there is a difference. Because every day, I remember the friends and family that I hurt. And that's good, because it motivates me to be better and to be accountable. Now there is this other thing. I don't know about you, but when I was young, I thought people that were incarcerated deserved to be there. After all, they're criminals, right? But what I found in Yankton was a bit concerning, specifically when it comes to drug offenders. You see, I think there's something inherently wrong when a drug dealer will get 10 or 15 or even 20 years of a sentence while many more violent criminals do far less time. You won't hear many people in Yankton saying, hey, I'm innocent. They just wonder why they're being warehoused at a place like Yankton for so many years at a cost to taxpayers of millions of dollars a year, and all the while, their families do the time right along with them. I'd say the, the system's broken. Uh, I got home last June. I spent five and a half months on home confinement. I can tell you reentry has not been easy. As you can see, I've gained a few pounds back. And uh, in retrospect, uh, it probably wasn't a good choice to work at my brother's restaurant uh, after eating four years, of, years worth of prison food. <laughs> but with that said, I'm not going to break my supervised release to go back and lose it, I'll tell you that. What I've done is I've used uh, the things I've learned in Yankton, and I asked a friend uh, for help and uh, to hold me accountable. Spring is just around the corner, maybe, and I can't wait to get out in the yard and uh, 
used some of the vocation I learned at Yankton to beautify my own place. And, uh, oh yeah, as of this past March 15th, I haven't gambled in seven years. Not on a sporting event, not on a card game, and not even a lotto quick pick. And that's okay, because I heard in the joint, that game's rigged anyway. <laughs> Thank you.